Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. And... And that was one of the things when I did have those bouts of kind of depression and, and, and I struggled on the boat is because I was thinking, how am I going to get to the other side? I think it was right about day 11 or 12 when I was having problems with the order helm. Um, my mind went to the, the size of the challenge. Uh, and by then I was probably only a few hundred miles into the, the journey and I kind of just saw I could never get there. So to get past that, as with, with most things, you've got to sort of break it down into small, small and manageable kind of bite-sized pieces. And whether that for me was nautical miles um, for something like this self-isolation, it's like, well, what can I do today? How productive can I be today? Um, develop useful, productive routines. And that might mean suddenly I'm getting out of, the same, out of bed at the same time each day and uh, getting in a shower, having a healthy breakfast, putting comfortable clothes on, it doesn't have to be a suit and tie, um, but something that is a little bit more normal for the, the working week and, and kind of start to break your day up into um, a routine that your body gets used to and you'll find that you'll be more productive and um, more geared up to, to tackle something that at this stage we, we don't know when, um, when it may come to an end. This is Tim Crockett and this is the Tom Roland Podcast. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. 
Learn more at marines.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show today. On one of my first episodes, I tracked down this guy that was getting ready to do really a, a race that was, it seemed extreme even to me. And that was a row across the Atlantic Ocean, 3,000 miles. He was doing it for uh, to bring awareness to veterans' issues, PTSD, veteran suicide. Uh, he is a, a former Special Forces um, member himself, has a background in the military and Special Forces. His name's Tim Crockett, and he has uh, his organization is called Tame the Kraken. And he did that race, and he successfully completed it. And we're going to catch up with him right now and find out. I want to. I want to hear the. I want to hear what happened. Um, I know that rowing 3,000 miles across the Atlantic Ocean alone in a 24-foot boat had to be full of a lot of stories. So hopefully, Tim is going to recount those with us right now. So here we go. Tim, how you doing? I'm doing well. Man, it's good to hear from you. I followed your race. Um, Man, it was amazing. Thank you. Uh, Yeah. So how long has it been since since you finished? It's been just over a year. I came into Antigua on the 13th of February of last year. So uh, a good year now. Right on. So I know that we, we've we done a podcast before. You were one of the earliest guests. The, the podcast has grown quite a bit. So let's bring everybody up to speed on what this race was and why you were doing it. Absolutely. So um, this is a race now that when I did it, it was in its 21st year, uh, set up by Sir Che Blythe back in, ooh, what are we, 97? Uh, and it is a ocean rowing race. Um, it starts in La Gomera in the Canary Islands, just off the northwest coast of North Africa, and finishes in Antigua. Wow! And and that's um, you were you were doing this solo, but there were other teams that were multiple rowers. That's correct. Um, I did it. Um, there were 28 teams in total uh, with 88 rowers. Um, there was five of us that were doing it solo, uh, including myself. And then everyone else was either a, a pairs team, a team of three, four, or a five. Wow. And so how many people finished? So out of the 28 teams, 27 boats finished. There was a pairs team, a mixed pairs team that pulled themselves out after about three or four days. And we're not quite sure as to why. We don't know whether it was as a result of injury, seasickness, um, or some sort of uh, mechanical failure on board the boat. Well, we haven't got the full details, but they were rescued by the one of the safety yachts uh, i think day three or day four and were brought into cap verde and then they returned from there so other than that one boat uh, the other 27 boats made it safely across wow that's pretty good was the weather decent for for everyone or so that's the one big factor that that has the most uh, variation from year to year um i think everyone in the fleet myself included was prepared for big seas, the prospect of being capsized and all the sort of drama that goes with um, this type of race and and the North Atlantic. Uh, And the year before, all of the 
the world records for the crossings uh, were smashed because there was big seas, a lot of uh, sustained following strong winds for the entire race. So we went into this kind of thinking, yeah, let's, let's kind of get amongst this. Um, but we had the complete opposite. We had three very distinct periods where we had no weather. Uh, and I mean, not that the North Atlantic is like a mill pond, but as close to it, uh, there was still the, the large sort of rolling waves, but not a breath of wind, wow. uh, flat, calm seas. And that might sound fairly idyllic, <laughs> but um, when you're trying to drag a boat that weighs about a ton in weight um, through flat, calm seas in 80, 90 degree weather, high humidity, uh, it it's a different story and it's not quite as kind of idyllic and uh, picturesque as one could imagine. It's actually quite miserable because um, we would want to make good use of the, of the trade winds, um, which is this wind that obviously comes from North Africa across to the Caribbean to help kind of push the boats along. Um, but we never got it. So I think that's why a lot of the crossings for our race were a lot slower than, than every anticip- everyone anticipated. Um, I myself were, was planning on a sort of a 50-day crossing, um, even though for safety reasons you have 90 days' worth of food and you make your own water through a, a desalination unit and sort of all these things are geared up for a, uh, a worst-case scenario. Um, I was planning on 50 days based on kind of two or three years' worth of data and other solo rowers, um, but it took me 63 days. So that was large in part with the lack of weather and a few mechanical issues on board. How how soon into the race did you realize that you were going to be way behind schedule? Um, it wasn't until, oh, it was still fairly early. I would say it was probably week two or three. Um, it was day two. I sustained an injury to my knee, which was just a, a, a basic sort of error. I was climbing into the cabin and, um came down on a fairly large wave and my knee kind of twisted and I perhaps tore a few bits and pieces inside my right knee, um, which in itself wasn't that bad. It was a bit painful, but it wasn't stopping me from rowing. And the weather at that point was still uh, a little bit favorable. But about day 12, I think it was, day 11 or day 12, um, my auto helm, which is a piece of equipment that sort of keeps the boat pointing in the right direction and um, is a big help to a solo rower because you haven't got anyone else there to help yeah. kind of steer the boat when you're uh, rowing. Um, that packed in, uh, and that caused a lot of problems in terms of being able to steer the boat in the right direction and make sort of more decent forward process. So that started to slow me down a little bit while I was trying to figure out how to work around um, not having an order helm and manually steering the boat and locking the boat off on a on a heading. And then shortly after that, we got hit by our first um, period of no weather, which um, meant that I had to go onto power anchor. It's a big parachute-like um, device that holds you still in the water. Yeah, we use those for um, fishing, sea anchors. Yep, absolutely. So um, we had those to sort of prevent the boats from getting blown backwards. Well, uh, during the whole course of my race, my best day um, was 67 miles. Where on this period, my best day was, um, I think, minus two. I still got, even with the use of a power anchor, I got blown back a couple of miles 
Wow. In, in, in the course of the whole thing. So that was the first wake up that, okay, we're now a little bit behind schedule. And then on top of that, with the injury and the uh, problems with my auto helm, um, I, I think I dropped from leading the, the solo pack and being um, kind of even ahead of a, a couple of threes and, and pairs boats uh, to now dropping a position um, and seeing the, the, the gap start to open up between myself and um, the other solo rower in front of me. So that was kind of the, the first indication that things were going a little bit slow. But at that point, you think, yeah, we can make it up later in the race. The, the Once we get down into the, the trade winds, things will pick up and we'll, we'll soon make up this lost uh, ground. But um, then we got hit by the second period and then towards the end, another period of unfavorable weather. Um, so, yeah, I think probably around about the 1,000-mile mark, 1,500 miles, um, almost to the halfway point, we, we knew we were all uh, moving a lot slower than previous races. Wow. So that was going to be one of my next questions is how, how often were you seeing these other boats? You got 27 boats all departing. Did you depart at exactly the same time? So we all left on the morning of the 12th of December. Um, the Wife's first birthday. boat parts, I think, uh, about 8 o'clock in the morning, 8, 8.30. And then all the boats are released at five-minute intervals. So you're all lined up there in Lagomera, and it's a, it's a real big deal. There's a lot of people that come down. You've got friends and family all waving you off. Um, and they start with the faster boats. So the five-person teams go first and then the fours and threes and twos and then the solos um, go off last. And I think I was the third from last boat to depart. Um, and for the first couple of hours, you may see one or two boats off in the distance. Um, and then for the first 24, 48 hours, uh, you would only really see them at night, kind of with the navigation lights way off in the distance. Of course, using your chart plotter and AIS system, you could see them if they were um, in close proximity to you, and we're talking just a couple of miles. But after that, your boat is very low on the water. Uh, you're in amongst the waves. So really, even at those distances, you both had to be on a sort of crest of a wave and looking in the right direction to see another boat. Yeah. Um, but other than that, um, after kind of day two, I didn't see another rowing boat until I arrived in Antigua. Wow. Um, but that said, I didn't see it through my own eyes. Um, I think it was about, we had around about a thousand miles left to go. Um, and about three o'clock one morning, my AIS system goes off, which is this device that kind of is an anti-collision system on, on all modern boats now of a certain size. And you set it a proximity alarm. So any boat that's kind of in that area or is coming on a collision course with you, this alarm goes off. Mm -hmm. So half asleep one night, like I said, about three in the morning, I'm rowing along. All of a sudden, the alarm goes off. So I, I can go into my cabin and pull up my chart plotter and, and kind of click on the dot and see who it is. And um, lo and behold, it was a friend of mine who was rowing as a pairs boat that had set off 15 minutes ahead of me from Lagomera. Um, like I said, almost six weeks previously. <laughs> and we, we crossed paths 
within half a mile, half a nautical mile of each other. Um, and obviously we didn't, we couldn't see each other. The, we saw dots on, on the chart uh, and we spoke on the radio. Um, but other than that, no, there was, there was no other real contact with any of the other races. So did you have the, uh, the uh, EIS system there so you could see the name of each vessel that you're, that you're passing? Like they have that. Yeah, on that's radio. one of yeah, that's what that's one of the advantages of having it. Uh, not only from a safety perspective, but yes, it gives you the opportunity to um, call up the vessel right. on VHF by its vessel's name, and obviously you know um, its vector, its speed, those, those sort of things. That especially to a solo rower is very important. Well, yeah. Um, how how what what um, distance did you have that alarm set? For, for another boat being close to you? I think I had it, um, I think it was five nautical miles. Um, or no, I, I had one that I could set with two different um, alarms. One was uh, the proximity, which I think was five nautical miles. And then I had another one um, in terms of speed and collision. Yeah. So within five miles, I would get like a chirp that just let me know that there were boats in the vicinity. And then the other one, which was a persistent alarm that you had to go and acknowledge was if something is heading straight for you, mm -hmm. uh, which was one of my biggest fears, to be honest. Right. Because I mean, were there container ships and, and, and big boats yeah, in that um, area as well? Now, the, the destiny, the, the area that we sort of leave from and then come down and across, um, just to the North of us is a fairly busy shipping lane. And, we would get everything from uh, container ships to uh, uh, pleasure yachts transiting uh, across the, the Atlantic to oil tankers. We, we pretty much everything that would go back and forth. Um, now, most of them were often in the distance, um, but I was surprised how, how many ships that I would see. Certainly early on, obviously, the closer you are to land, that you see more vessels um in the middle of the atlantic it would be um a pleasant surprise to see something pop up um and then um as we started to come in closer to the caribbean you you had vessels that were traveling north more so than, than going across the atlantic so those that were coming up the eastern seaboard perhaps from either the caribbean or um latin america and again that was one of the things that you could punch up in in the chart plotter and see where they uh, were coming from and where they were going to and the speed and all, all those sort of things, which when you're stuck on the boat with very little entertainment, <laughs> um, even the, 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 the that scrap of information was uh, interesting. Right. That had to be get, get pretty lonely out there. I would imagine. I mean, you, you, uh, for, for those who don't uh, or didn't listen to the first podcast, you have a military background in special forces and you have a lot of training, you know, probably to to understand how to deal with these things. But did you did you have a problem with with isolation and loneliness when you were doing this race? I mean, six how many days? Sixty some odd days. Sixty three. Sixty three yeah, days. days. Two hours and thirty seven minutes. <laughs> Counted everyone. Um, exactly. Yeah, I didn't quite get it down to the seconds. Um. Well, if we go back one step further and, and let those that don't 
know why I did it in the first place. So yes, I have a military background, and the the reason why I undertook this challenge in the first place was to raise awareness and funds for uh, post traumatic stress and uh, mental health issues amongst me- amongst veterans. Um, the reason why I chose to do it solo uh, was really to sort of try and draw as much um, kind of comparisons to to those that are suffering from from mental health and certainly those that are isolated and lonely and suffering from anxiety and things of that nature. Um, and even though I'm a uh, an introvert and a loner at heart, and yes, I've got a, a military background that has trained me in in a lot of those things and operated in isolation in in some parts of the world uh it is a different story when you're on a boat in the middle of the atlantic by yourself and it's not when it's by itself um i I think i was fully prepared mentally to deal with um being by myself uh, for a long period of time but it's when you kind of mix that in with an injury um exhaustion sleep deprivation um, when things are not quite going your way and the wind is blowing you in the wrong direction, that's really when it kind of weighs on you more. And you, you well, I didn't realize that how, even though I'm a loner, um, how much we really do need other people, uh, um, not just in a physical sense, um, but in a, I don't know, a, a mental sense, just to, to know that someone's out there. And yes, the, the physical separation was was difficult at times. Uh, now, I was very fortunate to have a satellite company as wasn't one of my sponsors, so I had the ability to communicate with anyone I wanted, whenever I wanted. Um, and while that was good, sometimes it was also that double-edged sword where you would relieve some of the uh, the anxiety and stress by being able to speak to someone certainly my my wife my kids my family um but as soon as you come off that call you then after a while would maybe dip down a little bit deeper into kind of depression and loneliness because you've hung up the phone and now that's gone away and you're still faced with right. all of those challenges that you're you're battling and perhaps caused you to reach out on the on the phone um but we knew that going into it. So while um, it was more of a, a realization on, on how much we, we do need other people and how it did sort of um, kind of challenge you further, uh, it, it is it is part of doing a race like this solo or perhaps any long endurance um, challenge when you're sort of by yourself and have to be very um, self-reliant. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, you know, the time that we're doing this particular podcast, we're, we're all kind of a little bit like that. That was on the far extreme of the scale, but now it's, we're basically in lockdown We're we're isolated uh, from others. So can you draw any comparisons to like how you dealt with that uh, on the extreme scale? Like when you have yeah. those moments of, of, of real, down. Yeah, absolutely. There, there are a lot of um, comparisons because even though it was a challenge that I pursued and I knew that I was going to be going into kind of essentially self-isolation, um, there are those external factors that challenged 
kind of what I wanted to happen, um, and I had no control over them. I think that's the situation that we're faced with now. Many people may not be used to working from home, um, and after a number of days, that that thought of oh great, I don't have to get out of my pajamas, I don't have to kind of suffer a two-hour commute into an office. Those sort of things, you you realize that oh, wasn't so bad, um, and it it can, like you said. Um, be a challenge for some people, uh, being stuck at home and not being able to have the freedoms that you you once had before, and and I would say that really, it's not to look at the whole period of time that we may be stuck working from home or self isolation, and and that was one of the things when I did have those bouts of kind of depression and 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 I struggled on the boat is because I was thinking. How am I going to get to the other side? I think it was right about day 11 or 12 when I was having problems with the order helm. Um, uh, my mind went to the the size of the challenge. Uh, and by then, I was probably only a few hundred miles into the, the journey. And I kind of just saw I could never get there. So to get past that, as with, with most things, you've got to sort of break it down into small, small and manageable kind of bite-side pieces and uh, whether that for me was nautical miles um for something like this self-isolation it's like well what can i do today how productive can i be today um develop useful productive routines it, and that might mean suddenly alarm getting out at the same out of bed at the same time each day mm-hmm. and uh, getting in a shower having a healthy breakfast putting comfortable clothes on it doesn't have to be a suit and tie um but something that is a little bit more normal for the the working week and and kind of start to break your day up into um a routine that your body gets used to and you'll find that you'll be more productive and um more geared up to to tackle something that at this stage we we don't know when um when it may come to an end yeah you know one of the things that you said there was that that it wasn't like one thing for you. Like it wasn't the fact that the weather was not ideal. It was the fact that the mm-hmm. weather wasn't ideal and your knee hurt and the helm's broken and you just got off the phone with somebody and, and that's over. And now there's like, Oh man, I don't feel so good. Or, you know, it's this yeah. combination of a lot of factors. And I think that's what a lot of people are going through too right now is, is that it's not just that, you know, things are shut down. It's that things are shut down and you lost your job and things are shut down and you lost your job mm-hmm. and, you know, two, two more things happen and it's raining outside and you can't get out yeah. and this and that, like, those are, those are the kind of things that compound. And it sounds like on your, on your, uh, experience on this race that those compounding, um, factors kind of brought you down more so at certain times how do you how did you deal with that when you're out there completely alone you you try making the phone call and you get a little lift but like you say after it's over now you're back you're facing 1500 more miles of of this race how do you deal with that when you're completely alone like that out in the middle i mean i guess one thing to the advantage is it's not like you could just quit right there yeah (laughs) <laughs> I mean, no, wait, wait, you're you're wait, wait, in it now. On, yeah. 
yeah, once you're on the ride, it's very difficult to get off. Um, so myself and all the rest of the teams included, there, there, a lot of preparation goes into this. There's a lot of uh, research. So everyone is ready to tackle the things that we know are coming. We know that there's likely to be damage to the boat or equipment loss or equipment failure. We know that there could be extremes of weather, whether that's big waves, 30, 40 foot in height, kind of the heat, the humidity, those storms that come through. Um, you're on the boat for a long time, exposed in that sort of environment. So we know how to deal with like blisters, infections over time, salt sores, all those sort of things that are going to come, as well as your body is breaking down. The more time you spend on, on the boat, the more your, your muscles are, are breaking down because um, what you don't realize is that you're not walking anywhere, you're not even standing Right. For any long period of time, so parts of your your musculature start to waste away because you're just not using it. Um, and then there's the the uh, physicality of it. Rowing for myself between twelve and fifteen hours a day. Um, and then I think the biggest factor of all of this, and and I, I mention it now because it sort of plays into what we're dealing with today, um, is sleep deprivation. Um, I would sleep on average between. I don't know, three and six hours in a 24-hour period. And I was, I was work, working in kind of four-hour blocks. So at night or during the dark hours, I would row for two hours and, and rest for two hours. But in those two hours of rest, I'm still having to get dressed and undressed and, and deal with the issues on the boat and all the other sort of things. So really, uh, the, the, the sacrifice that you had to make was kind of real restorative sleep and over time that has i think the biggest effect on one's body um and really if you look at what we're facing now if you don't get into that kind of productive routine if we don't know what we're going to do tomorrow more more than likely you're stuck either with your face in your phone either playing um, games or scrolling through social media or even looking at the news um and it's all fairly negative uh, and whether you consciously or, or unconsciously are affected by all this negativity and this uncertainty that plays on you and if you are then staying up late at night and then getting up late that is going to have that same negative effect on on your body and you'll get stuck in a, a negative cycle and you'll find that you will get um down if not somewhat depressed so that's why i say that you've got to get into uh, a productive working routine, whatever that is for you. Um, yeah, stay up late at the weekends and do the sort of things that you would do normally. But without a place to go and a structure of work or study or whatever it may be, we can easily slip into these negative sort of cycles. Um, and at times on the boat, that that's kind of similar in the sense that, okay, couldn't do much about um, the sleep deprivation. There were at times when I, I just physically couldn't get out of the cabin and I had to kind of roll over and, and try and get another 30 minutes <laughs> worth of rest. Um, but there were times that you have to sort of kind of step back, think I can't get a control of this at the moment. What's the next best option? Um, so we can't control everything. Um, certainly when you're on a small boat in the middle of the Atlantic, having that realization. Uh, and to be honest, some days I got it and some days I didn't. And that's sometimes when I would pick up the phone to some extent to to maybe complain and whinge 
to whoever would listen, mainly my <laughs> wife. Um, and sometimes she would have to kind of verbally slap me around the face and say, hey, just get on with it. Very little I can do. Complaining about it's not going to help. Figure it out. Um, and I think that was a another sobering wake-up call. So to go back to my earlier statement, you don't realize how much you need other people, whether it's a sympathetic ear or whether it's someone to give you a little bit of a pep talk or, or um, a slap around the face to, to G you up and, and get on with it. Um, but at the end of the day, sometimes we do just have to buckle down and get on with it. Yeah. Did, I guess, was your wife kind of your champion or did you have other, you know, you said you talked to your kids. Did you talk to anybody else? Like who, who would, who would yeah. you call for? Like if you were super down, I mean, obviously your wife, but was there someone else that, that gave you some, some real motivation and support or told you the right things at the right time that you needed to hear them while you were out there? Yeah. I, I had a, 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 not intentionally, but I had a fantastic team. Um, I had a, an old school buddy of mine from back in the UK who was, kind of my my team manager um he helped me hugely with a lot of the build-up and, and and preparation just before the race and he was there to be kind of a, a sympathetic ear uh, uh inject some humor into to the the day uh, if i was sort of dying um a lot of the time i didn't realize perhaps how depressed um and complaining i was until um Maybe I spoke to my wife and she's the one that could tell me straight. Um, I had another team member who was helping me weather ride across, kind of point me in the right direction and give me all the weather updates to to work with or around the weather as best we could. Um, he was fantastic. I mean, he's a former Marine as well. Um, he lives on board a yacht in the Mediterranean. Couldn't have asked for anyone better. And he knew when to give me words of encouragement, when not to say anything, um, when to sort of say, look, this is what needs to be done, get on and do it. Um, so I, I had people from friends and family members that kind of knew me and knew when to just shut up and listen or when to say, hey, go get it. Um, it's, it's up to you. There's no one else can do it. We can give you the support verbally, but you're on the boat. You're the one that I've got the oars in the hands. Right. Um, keep moving. Um, and that, I, we didn't sort of talk about that before we went into the challenge. It just kind of happened. Um, and and what I would say is that I, I would have perhaps taken longer and struggled with a lot more had I not had that team around me. Yeah. Yeah. Did, you know, I don't have any, any experience doing anything quite like you did, but I did do this one event that was – particularly impactful to me and it was uh, uh called seal fit kokoro and then another event called go ruck selection and they were both very different i've talked about them many times on this podcast so i won't talk about it much but one of them was very team driven seal fit kokoro that was all about you know develop this team around you you can do anything with help from others if you're feeling down help others and you'll feel better and it was all about creating this team around you with people that you had never met before. And that was great. And I made it through that event and it was, it was great. And then Go Ruck Selection was exactly the opposite. You could not talk to anyone. You could not help anyone. You could not accept help from anyone. You were completely on your own. Even though 
you know, it started out with 270 people in the thing, only one finished. And even though there were that many people there, there was no help from others. And it was, you were completely a lone wolf in the thing. And I didn't fully understand the lessons that I learned in the first event until I was faced with the with the new rules of the second event of not talking to anyone, not helping anyone, being completely alone. And I found that I had much more difficulty with the second event for many of the reasons that you're talking about. I mean, you've got words from words of encouragement in the first event. You've got uh, acts of, of kindness. You know, somebody hands you something or helps you up or does something that was completely not allowed in the second event. So the reason that I, I, I preface what I'm going to ask when I got home from the first event, I really, I, I didn't fully understand the lessons. I got home from the second event and I'm like, Oh, it's all about the team. It's all about the team. And it really made me reevaluate like in every area of my life, like who is my team here? It, it, when in my training, it's with my friends, in my fishing, it's with, with the customers, it, with, with, filming the TV shows. It's with the whole production crew in my family. It is, it is my family. You know, this is my team that is going to go through, through life with me. I just kind of wonder if you had a a similar um, kind of change of, or or realization when you, when you endure 63 days, 64 days (laughs) on the boat, when you get back, do you have a different opinion of team and support? than you did before you left? Um, absolutely, yeah. Um, going into this, I realized that it, while it was an individual physical challenge, it was still very much a team event. And throughout the, the challenge, I was reminded of that time and time again. And again, it wasn't intentional, the team, how it was set up. Everyone had a role to play, and they just naturally um, kind of fulfilled that role. Once I got to the other end and had a moment to sort of a few days, few weeks to kind of start to adjust and then start to reconnect with the wider team that helped me get to that start line and certainly helped me get across. Um, yeah, it just reinforced a lot of the things that I had come to know by first playing sports uh, before before joining the military, I played a lot of rugby back in the UK, um, and you realise kind of the the value of of everyone on the team and and how you can succeed working as a team um, in the military. Exactly the same, and it's funny you mentioned those two different challenges. Obviously, both born from different types of uh, special operations right. uh, selection or, or training. Um, and what a lot of people don't realise when looking at these challenges, because again, we're we're force feed force-fed certain media and uh, we create our um, our own opinions and perceptions over kind of um, whether these units uh, and so forth but they are designed for a very specific purpose um, so again something like the go ruck challenge those individual efforts that's to tre- to test the individually individual not just physically but like you said mentally what you're subjected to when working in that sort of job or role within a, a special forces unit um you have to be 100 percent dependent on the people in your team left and right of you 
um, and you have to know yourself. Uh, some people go into that process thinking, oh, that's the life that I want. Um, I'll be great at it. And they don't really perhaps know themselves. So that part of the training really tests the individual and weeds out those that really don't want it. Um, uh, they may think they want it, but that really puts you under a lot of pressure because you you have to rely um, solely on on what's between your ears or or in your heart. Um, and then the other, like the seal fit um, type of training, it's very team orientated. Um, you're you're only as strong as your weakest link. Yeah. Um, everyone's a leader. Those sort of things that come out of that training, that's very much at the heart of. Uh, any small team kind of operations and, and, and unit. And that very easily translates across to um, like the corporate world and um, whether it's a nonprofit, whether it's a sporting organization, uh, it, it, the principles remain the same. Uh, it's not this alien world of the military and they do their stuff and we do our stuff. Uh, we can learn from both sides. And those that have made the transition, whether they row a, an ocean or climb a mountain or run across a desert, yeah, the value of the team um, is, is so important. Like I said, whether they're with you, helping you carry the load, carry each other, or whether it's that moral support, that technical support, that camaraderie, uh, that that this kind of cheerleading are all important at different parts of any challenge. Um, uh, and, yeah, I, I, I came to see that almost on a daily basis. Um, but, yeah, when you get back and everything sort of soaks in, um, you realize what you've done. And, and still to this day, talking to you now, um, I, I think back on kind of certain moments and you think, yeah, that, that wouldn't have been um, – a nice challenge had I not been given the support from, from outside. Like, like what, when you, when you think about that, do you have an example? Yeah, there was, my boat was a new design and, um, obviously it's very proven from a technical point of view, but when you fully load it and obviously the, as you go through the race, you eat food from certain parts of the, the boat. So the, the trim of the boat changes, so the performance of the boat changes. And then as the sea changes, it does different things to the boat. Uh, and then when my order helm went out, I had big problems in steering it in a, in a straight direction. And there was one time where the sea was coming from a certain direction. I needed to go in a different direction. And for two hours, all I did was spin around in circles. Uh, every time I kind of locked the steering off in a certain direction and start to row, it would start to creep around, creep around, and then go broadside to the waves, mm. which would almost capsize me, and I would get soaked, and it would knock stuff around on board the deck that I'd have to tie back down and reposition and all that sort of stuff. That is just soul-destroying, and it would hit you again and again. And after two hours of all-out effort, you get to the point you just want to throw the oars away and – kind of be done with it and get off the boat. And and that's when you have to sort of reach out. I can't figure out how to do it on board the boat. Um, so I reached out to uh, someone that helped me with some of my training. And I reached out to the, the boat builder. And we reached out to other teams. And um, by combining all these different scraps of advice, kind of filter out 
what was going to work for me with some encouragement from my team. And like I said, it wasn't the perfect solution. It was the next best thing. And it kept me advancing towards my my destination. Um, so, yeah, it was a combination of the, the right advice at the right time with uh, the realization that sometimes you just need to step back, control what you can control, wow. and then not worry about the rest. Mm, yeah. So were you able to get that auto helm working eventually or did you battle <laughs> with this thing the whole time? Yeah. So um, I'll go back first. I'd asked someone that has a ton of experience in ocean rowing. He um, helped build the boat. He's rowed the Pacific Ocean, the Atlantic twice, uh, and is preparing to um, row the Pacific again here, hopefully later this year. And um, I asked him, what's the one piece of equipment on on, on the boat that's likely to, to fail? And what do I need to do about it? And he said, auto helm. Um, not <laughs> straight, designed, straight so away. Sort of work. Yeah, it's, it's likely to, to break down. You've got to get a second one, maybe even a third, and rotate them every four to six hours. All right, perfect. So I wrote that down in my notebook. I had all the, the intentions of getting a second one and maybe a spare, and then just didn't for some reason. And um, so I had the one order helm. Um, I thought, well, I, I know how to, like I said, lock off the steering and figure out a different way of doing this. And when I was getting tossed around and pirouetting around, I was really regretting not having that second order helm on board. Mm -hmm. um, so just one fact, actually it was the Silver Fox, my weather writer, he, uh, he suggested taking it apart and, and cleaning um, the motor. And it's an electrical motor in there that sort of powers it. I went, okay, this could be interesting. Um, and I did that. I cleaned it out, sort of reset it, and I got the thing working again. Now, it wasn't working 100%. Any of severe lateral or side-on pressure to the boat, and it would trip itself out. But in karma seas, it would work, which meant that I could cover more distance in the same amount of time um, in certain weather conditions. Um, and I, I think by the time I got to Antigua, I think I rebuilt the thing four times, um, stripped it down, cleaned it out. Um, pieces that were broken or bent within it, I, I pulled out and it still worked. Um, <laughs> And then with about six, 700 miles to go, um, now the closer you get down into the Caribbean, obviously the, the, the warmer the temperatures are, not only the sea, but the air temperatures as well. And one of the big problems with this order helm, would, it would overheat. Um, and I had this small little USB um, electrical fan uh, just to kind of circulate the air in the cabin. And I thought, hang on, why don't I repurpose that? So basic science, um, I put a, a wet uh, or a couple of wet uh, baby wipes that you use to sort of clean your skin down um, yeah. on board over where the, the motor was within this device, uh, soaked them, and then directed the fan on the, on the thing. And through evaporation, it lowered the temperature by about, five six degrees huh. 
Um, and that allowed me again to run the order helm for longer periods of time because up until that point I would row for three hours and then let the then switch the thing off for an hour. So I would row for three hours, rest an hour during the day, and then at night, like two hours on, two hours off. Um, and that would allow the the motor to, to cool down and kind of preserve its life a little bit. So through rebuilding it and my improvised cooling system, um, it, it got me all to about two miles short of my destination when it finally wow. died. Yeah. Um, but by then, there was nothing going to stop me from crossing that finish line. So that's interesting that you say that because I just, this morning when I was doing a little research, I did come across an article that said that the finish line was, I mean, you didn't just coast right into this thing. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, I it was, it was strange. I thought for some reason that the last morning, the last day was going to be some, Picture perfect, blue skies, calm seas, um, like pleasurable entrance into English Harbour, um, and that, and be the end of the race because you see, kind of the race finishes of all the all the previous races and flat calm water and it's I mean it's fantastic. I mean what even some of the like, even some of the that pictures that I've seen of you. I'm sorry to interrupt, but even some of the pictures that I've seen of you, it it did look pretty nice where you were. I mean, it's a harbor situation, Um, obviously, and it can be quite a bit different a mile away. Yeah. I don't, I'm not sure. I think everyone's so focused on like the start and the actual crossing that by then most people don't focus on literally the last quarter of a mile, if not a few hundred yards, which is actually inside English Harbor, which is a natural harbor on the Southern side of, of Antigua. Um, And it's, kind of in the lee of this big headland. Um, so once you get around the corner and into the actual um, harbour where the, the finish line is, and it's kind of the entrance to the harbour where the, the first boy or buoy is and, and the fort, you're in the lee of the, the cliff and, and the island itself. So that's why it's so calm. But you go half a mile in the other direction and you have 20-foot waves that are coming in from the wrong direction. And that's what I was faced with. Um, I knew kind of a couple of days beforehand with all the other factors and, uh, again, my weather writer, that the the weather was due to change. And when you're middle of the Atlantic, really, <laughs> it doesn't matter what direction you're going in, as long as it's west. It can be northwest, west, southwest. Uh, you could just head in any sort of direction. <clears throat> as long as you're you're making forward progress, it's only when you sort of get to around about eight nine hundred nautical miles away that you have to start to kind of make sure you're positioned in the right place. And you think, figure yourself just coming down like a funnel, and the closer you get to the island, the the, the more accurate you have to be. Right. Otherwise, you'll just float away on right on past. And Antigua is a small island, so um, so we would always kind of plan three days in advance, looking at the weather to try and make best use of the direction of the winds and and the sea state. And about five days out, we knew that the potential of the weather to change was was coming. Um, So I was trying to make more 
of a northerly, northerly approach so that I could kind of turn in and let the weather do most of the work. Well, just over 24 hours to go, and um, the weather didn't change as we hoped it was. Um, so the morning of the, the 13th, when the sun came up, um, I was much further north than I, I should have been. And the weather was coming in from the southeast. So essentially, it was pushing me up against the island. Um, and that doesn't sound too bad when uh, all the stuff is in your favor. But when you have a steering system that could go pop at any moment, and that injury that I'd picked up on day two, the only other option to sort of steer the boat when you're in um, close quarters like this is by using a foot steering system on the boat where you take the steering lines, kind of wrap it around um, one of the foot plates, and then you twist your leg or foot uh, in order to steer the boat. But that puts a tremendous amount of strain on one's knee, and that mm -hmm. was the knee that I had injured. So um, coming into this, I had it sort of plotted out on my, my chart plotter. And I, I think I was about 12 nautical miles from the finish when um, the sun came up. Now I can see the island. This is the first time I'd seen land for 63 days. Um, and I needed to get further south uh, to like a six nautical mile point in order to come in and clear this headland. Um, so I had about six miles to try and work my way south against the, the wind and the seas with a kind of dodgy steering system and a bad knee. Um, and I, I think it was about four hours or so of battling with that, getting closer and closer. I never made that, that waypoint. Uh, and I think I was about two or three miles straight line distance on the other side of the headland uh, with the seas pushing me in. And I knew that it wasn't going to quite be that idyllic finish that <laughs> I had in my mind's eye. Um, I knew that the steering was going to go at some point uh, and I would just have to sort of buckle down and get it done. So I strapped my knee up in anticipation. I had everything set. I had the handheld VHF to call for the, the local search and rescue um, and kind of started to prepare myself. And then probably about a mile or less than that, maybe 30 minutes before I was going to switch the steering off and just go manual and, and literally just um, battle my way in, uh, the boat did its own thing. I got hit by a wave, the order helm tripped out, which triggers an alarm, and then everything was just going crazy. So for those last two, two and a half hours coming into Antigua, I got this constant alarm screaming. <laughs> I got the seas pushing me up against the cliff. And I got to about, um, it was about a mile from the finish. And I was about 50, 60 feet from the cliffs with the waves like smashing up against them. Wow. Uh, it's the only time I wore a life jacket. <laughs> I threw my life jacket on because I thought I was going to end up on the rocks. And I went more into sort of survival mode then, and I just put my head down and and rode with every ounce of strength I had, and still getting pushed closer and closer to the cliffs. And then all of a sudden, whether it was 
local currents, but the boat then started to move in away from the cliff and in a in a back out to sort of sea. Um, and about ten minutes later, once I'd cleared the the cliffs, the search and rescue boat that helps guide you in pops up on the radio and says, "I'll be with you in in two minutes." Uh, I could hardly speak at that stage. I was so dehydrated. Um, and yeah, 20 minutes later, I crossed the finish line and it was, I wouldn't say it was, it was all for, it was forgotten, but it was a, a huge relief to have, um, completed not only the whole challenge, but just survived those final two miles, Man, that's uh, which a- were for me the, the toughest two miles of the whole race. That's incredible because I mean, you row 3000 miles, you endure all these different obstacles and challenges and 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 overcome them all did was there a moment there where you thought i've come all this way and i'm gonna bash this thing into the rocks and and come yeah. up a mile short for i didn't have that much time to sort of think about it or dwell on it but yeah when i started strapping the the life jacket back on staring at the cliffs thinking yeah i've come all this way for it not only to to end just shy of the finish um but there's a lot of obviously money and effort and everything tied into that that boat and you're somewhat emotionally attached to that it's been your home for the last 63 days yeah if not before um so all of that did go through my mind but then when you see those waves and i've got some video of it the waves crashing up over the over the rocks then my mind went to well if i do have to bail out um am i going to try and swim around am i going to try and climb the cliff I, I then went into more survival mode, thinking the various different contingencies if it were to, to end like that. Um, and as I was focusing on the cliff and just pulling on those oars, all of a sudden, I, like I said, I started to move. Um, and when I was clear, and the, the, literally within seconds, the, the radio pipes up and uh, I knew they were heading in my direction that, the worst was over. The end wasn't quite in sight. And actually, when I looked along the cliff um, or the shoreline, um, I could see some boat masts in the distance. And that's what I thought was the entrance to, to the harbor, um, which actually wasn't where I was heading. It was the next um, harbor further along the coast, literally another um, mile or so around. So the finish was a lot closer than I had even anticipated at that point. Um, and when he said, like, you're going to do this, you're going to look for a cross up on the cliff. And then when you get to that point, head north and pull with all your might, and you'll, you'll cross the finish line. I'm thinking, what is he talking about? And this is the, <laughs> the coxswain of the, of the uh, search and rescue rib. Um, and I just went, well, okay, I'll let him direct me. And then, I looked over my my left shoulder, saw the cross, suddenly realized where I was and how close I was to finish. Um, and again, then it that just takes over. Um, and I think at that point, um, even though I couldn't see the finish, knowing that it was literally a few hundred meters away, um, you just keep you just keep pulling. Um, wow. And then when you finally cross the finish line and the, the cannons go off. Um, that's where I kind of just collapsed literally on, on the deck of the boat. <laughs> and so you got your family, did they come to the finish? 
So um, my sister, my wife, and my kids were all there. Uh, and again, Sean, my my school buddy, uh, team captain, uh, were all there. And there, when you cross the finish line, that's about a quarter of a mile, maybe a little bit more, from where you come in along in Nelson's dockyard. So they're all on the on kind of the dockside. Um, they're listening to obviously the race organizers and the and the safety people. They can't see the finish line unless you go up to kind of the English fort up on the hill where one of the the race marshals are, and they they're the ones that signal that, that you've crossed the finish line. Everyone else is down uh, on the dockyard. And they they know that I'm just outside, but they were kind of like, "What's taking him so long? He's only a mile <laughs> away." And obviously, I'm I'm battling with these big seas, and they don't know what's going on. Then they they hear the cannon go. Um, it took me a little while to sort of get organized and pull it, pull everything together. And then it's a very surreal moment. Now it's flat, calm seas. Very different from 10, 15 minutes ago. And you have the this flotilla of small boats all around you, like um, people that are either they're vacationing or they live on the island and they come to kind of welcome all the boats that, that come in. So all these people that are, uh, I haven't seen people for <laughs> two and a half months. So all of a sudden I go from being by myself to all these other people in these boats around you, um, which kind of is a little bit overwhelming. Um, you're still very emotional in, in terms of kind of crossing um, the finish line. Uh, then you, you you row past these massive super yachts, and they then start uh, sounding their their horns, which like again going from no noise other than the sea <laughs> to again people clapping and cheering and these massive horns going off. Um, it's a little bit disorientating, and then when you go around the the, the bow of the last sort of super yacht. Uh, you look over your shoulder and you can see this mass of people on on the dock side, um, and that's when kind of the the emotion really grabs you. Um, I could pick out obviously my family because they're all wearing um, t-shirts the same color, and you get closer and then you can hear them, and they finally come alongside and <clears throat> they do the the welcome um, procedure, take pictures with the flags and so forth before they let you step off the boat um and then you just kind of get lost into the the whole ordeal and my emotions of it all and everything else well, that's got to be yeah. an incredible moment i gotta know um you get off that boat you've been eating dehydrated food you haven't had much water you haven't slept like, what was it like to get in a hotel? You got clean sheets. You can take a shower. You can eat whatever you want. What did you, what did you want to eat after all of this? A drink? I mean, a did you just want to drink yeah, a gallon a of, of water? Yeah, a lot of all that takes place um, on the dockside. Uh, they arrange your first meal, and so you go through all the, the the initial interviews and interacting with people and um. I think I got given a, a ice cold can of Coke, uh, and I, I didn't drink a lot of soda. Um, and after 
just battling with the sea for two and a half hours and not having anything to drink. That was, I mean, just pure nectar. <laughs> uh, I bet it was. Drink. That's the thing, you realize is that on board, there's no air conditioning. There's no, nothing's cold. It's um, the same temperature of what's around you. And as you get close to the Caribbean, everything's warm. So even the, the water that you're drinking is warm. It's not cold. Um, so a cold drink was, was fantastic. Um, I think my first meal that they provided for me on on the, the dock side there was, um, I think it was a cheeseburger and fries, if I, if I remember. <laughs> um, I'd asked for, for grilled octopus to go with the whole Tame the Kraken theme, but um, they, that was a bit more difficult, especially when they don't know what time you're exactly coming <laughs> to the, the harbour. Um, and then I think the that first day, the first couple of days, it, it you're adjusting to everything, like being around people, uh, walking. <laughs> like some people get uh, kind of a little bit wobbly after a few hours of being on a boat. Um, but after two and a half months, um, walking was quite a strange sensation. Um, your the, the backs of your legs, your hamstrings have kind of withered away, your, your calves are withered away. And you need those muscles to walk upstairs and walk in a straight line. So <laughs> it took a few hours to walk around unassisted, uh, and walking up and down stairs was a was a challenge. Uh, it took about three four days before uh, you could get around safely. Um, but it took a good three months of um, training and that to get um, kind of knees and legs working properly again. <laughs> um, I think the biggest. The thing that I, I, I find, obviously, being around my family, um, but having a shower, having God, running that had water, to feel good. Um, I think I, I must have drained the the tank. Um, <laughs> must have been in the shower for a good, nearly probably an hour, just letting the water run over you. There's nothing um, better than getting the salt water off, and you've had salt water. Uh, you've been covered in salt water for sixty days. That had to be. Just unbelievable. Yeah, because um, you can't escape it. Uh, even if it's just light spray, that dries on you and, and it becomes almost like sandpaper. Um, I would, every every time I came off a rowing shift, you would kind of wipe yourself down with, with baby wipes. But it's not the same as getting, jump, jumping in the shower and, like I said, washing it off with fresh water. Um, fresh water was obviously something that was in um, not short supply on a boat, but it was it, it drew a lot of energy from the batteries to to make fresh water. So I would have a kind of a a bucket bath probably every five days when I would get in. Um, so I'd get in to the water and um, clean the bottom of the boat, so scrape off all the barnacles because that um, would slow the boat down. But every five days I would do that, and then when getting back on board. Um, I would draw myself a, a bucket of fresh water first to clean all the clothes I was wearing, the equipment that I was using, um, and then I would use it to to have a a bucket bath, which was quite refreshing. Um, but still, nothing compared to standing in a shower for an hour and just letting the water run over you. I can imagine. Um, and then, did you have something? Were you craving anything like? 
I would think that you would be craving fr- anything fresh, fruit. Um, I don't know. I'm sure I did. Um, and they, like I said, they throw everything at you. Um, having an ice, ice cold beer was <laughs> was quite a nice <laughs> experience. Um, I, I don't think there was anything that I was really craving until I actually ate it. It was that it was. I actually didn't have that. Oh, other than the hot sauce, I, I, I tell a lie. Um, again, was one of those things that we put. I like spicy food. Um, I thought ah, two bottles of hot sauce will be plenty <laughs> for, um, I for fifty I ran, days. I, I think I ran out in the first two weeks. I'm <laughs> <laughs> not to say that the food was bland, but um, a lot blander than one would think. Um, so yeah, uh, I every meal that I went while I was on the island for about three three days before I flew back. Um, it'd be a different meal from a different place. Uh, and I would say that they probably were all spicy. So spicy food in general, I think it was what I'd missed the most, certainly coming into um, the final, I don't know, month and a half. Um, but yeah, other than that, I think it, it experiences kind of came back to me I don't know if it's the same for a lot of the other roses. Uh, it's kind of more gradual. Um, and I've spoken to many different groups, whether it's rotary groups or <clears throat> explorers clubs and things of that nature. Um, and answering different questions kind of sparks different memories and, and, and thoughts um, about because it's, it's too much to sort of recount in any one, one city. Right. Um, and everyone has kind of, different questions and different um, things they want to learn about. Um, and those are the things that sort of come to top of mind when, when those questions are asked. Yeah. Um, so I, I looked also on your uh, website this morning and I was, I was interested in this because you have a couple, you have a little collage of pictures up there and I, I clicked them and there were a couple of really interesting quotes that, I particularly liked one. I am only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. And I will not let what I cannot do interfere with what I can do. Edward Everett Hale. So did you choose that quote for your website before this race or after this race? Actually, I, I posted that up this morning. Oh, you did? Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I've... As I've gotten older, I've become more of a reader, uh, and I'm not really someone that reads fiction. I read either um, biographies uh, or accounts, whether it's adventures or certain um, periods in time. Um, and I'll dig a little bit deeper, and, and then, yeah, you find sort of these quotes that come out. Uh, and when I come across them, I either write them down or I'll take a screenshot of them uh, on my my phone. And then when I feel like posting something or it's in reaction to something that might go on, um, that's when I'll sort of search through my little collage of quotes and then I, I tend to sort of pair it with a picture um, from, from my row. Uh, that's kind of what I do and then I'll put it up to social media and then obviously that gets posted up on, uh, on the website, which actually needs 
kind of updating. Um, but um, yeah, they do speak to me. Um, they speak to me from kind of what I think the quote is, and then they I use them hopefully to speak to others um, either through our campaign, uh, like I said, which is for veterans' mental health, uh, or that one this morning. Like I said, it's more to do with what we're all going through at the moment. Um, again, people can feel that the world is against them, the situation's against them, uh, but you're not alone. Um, yes, you're you're one person, but you can do a lot. And it, it reminds me of that other um, story fable of uh, that young kid that comes across an old man on the on the shoreline throwing starfish back into the sea. Uh, and he asked, well, what are you doing? He said, I'm putting these starfish back in the sea. And he said, well, you can't make that much of a difference. There's thousands of them here. And he said, well, he made a difference for that one. And he yeah. throws another one in, made a difference to that one. So, um, yeah, I, I think words are powerful. Um, and if you can then pair them to a personal experience, I think it just reinforces it. Um, not only in your own mind, but the, those that perhaps know you and those that may need a little pick-me-up. Yeah, for sure. I mean, quotes and words are, are incredibly powerful. And sometimes, you know, they're, they're famous quotes because the, the person who wrote it was, was eloquent and, and efficient in, in his use of words, and, and they generally impart a, a, a really powerful message in a, in a few short words uh, from a great speaker, orator, or whoever whoever it was, writer, yeah. that, that had that. But I, I read that this morning and I thought, yeah. I, wonder if he, I wonder if he posted that before the race or after the race because the whole purpose of what you were doing was to raise awareness and money for um, mental issues, PTSD, veteran suicide, um, as we had begun before. Is that, that's fair to say that, right? It is, yeah, and it still is the case. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think I entered into this challenge with the the sole aim of um, doing something that I felt was worthy of that that cause. Um, when I got to the end, um, I felt that I didn't quite achieve what I set out to, um, but then realized that my ocean row wasn't the end. It was the beginning and uh, while we don't know quite what the next chapter will be we've got thoughts we've got ideas i've teased a few things out um and hopefully once we get past um this covid situation um those ideas will kind of crystallize a little bit more and um we'll we'll renew the campaign and and like i said i might be one person but uh, hopefully we'll have a, a, a an impact on others and we'll we'll grow it from there right i love that and and what i was wondering you know it's like there's so it, that issue veteran suicide is such a giant issue that it would be very easy for somebody just to say i can't i, I can't do anything about that but your quote really it spoke to me at, you know knowing who I was getting ready to talk to and what you had just done. It was like, that, that's pretty powerful, you know, that, yeah, you're right. You're not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to fix that problem. 
but don't let what you can't do interfere with what you can do. I don't know. I just thought it was pretty powerful this morning. I, I checked that out. And then, then as we were talking, also you're telling this story about the, uh, about the, um, the helm. And, uh, and then there's another quote on there, which is this one, I think. It's not enough to, it's not enough that we do our best. Sometimes we must do what is required, Winston Churchill. And so that, I, I mean, I, I was just kind of thinking about reading that off your website this morning. And I guess those are Instagram posts, actually, that are just posted on your website because it takes me right to Instagram when I click it. Yep. So anybody could go and, and see your, your Instagram at Tame the Kraken. But those quotes, like that just, that's a perfect quote for like what you said and, and what you had to endure there and, and how you had to overcome. It's like, it's not enough to do your best. Like sometimes you've got to dig deep and do what's required, which I guess in turn, you realize that you can, you've always got more in the tank. You've always got, yeah. there's, there's no I, I way you're going to do your best. Yeah. That's how a lot of people sometimes think that is the case. Um, and I think maybe, maybe before the race, um, certainly before the end of the race, that was very much my mentality. Um, like I said, I was a rugby player. I was in the Marines. I was in special forces. Sometimes brute force and ignorance is, is kind of that default setting. Um, if in doubt, like, give it a clout. Um, <laughs> but when you, in, in certain circumstances, I learned on, on the boat that sometimes rowing with all your might for hours on end is not the smart thing to do. Um, and actually it was my wife uh, and then another good friend of mine who's on my team um, that got me to realize that sometimes you just need to step back and apply a little bit of logic or reason to the challenge, the problem, and figure out, like I said, what can you do? Um, so, yes, you can interpret that as just brute strength and ignorance and just muscle through it. Or you can think of, well, sometimes you've got to be smarter and better rather than just like, power through it. Um, so, yeah, it can mean different things in different situations. And, and I... I dwell on both of those when, when I look at that. But I'm a big fan of Winston Churchill. I think he was a, uh, an incredible leader um, and the right person at the right time. Um, I think a country in war faced with what they were facing at the time, um, he was the right leader at, the, at, at that moment in time. So uh, I think that that's a lot of the, the teachings I take from from that era and, and, and certainly Sir Winston Churchill. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and just loaded with, with really powerful quotes. I mean, if you just Google Winston Churchill quotes, you, you don't even have to really know what he's talking about because what he's saying can be applied in so many different places in your life. You know, just in, in terms of like we were, we were talking about, he was a great orator and he was very efficient in his speech and, and uh, in his quote, you know, he may have been speaking about something else, but it's easily applied to many other things in your life. That's that's pretty cool. What I want to I want to send you a book. Uh, I read this little book. Maybe you've read it. Do you, have you ever read a book called You Squared? 
Um, I've not. It's a um, little book. You would probably never come across it in a bookstore. You'd probably never. I don't know. I, I, would, I don't know that anyone would have occasion to necessarily come across it unless it was recommended to you by somebody else. But I liked it so much that I bought a dozen copies and I've given away almost all of them. But I want to I want to send you one and I'd love to yeah. see you'll, you'll read it in in two hours. You'll you'll if, if it even takes you that long. But if you're like me, you'll read it in two hours and you'll go right back to ch- page one and read it again to make sure that you and you'll get something different out of it the second time. I don't know. It's just very interesting. It goes, I don't want to spoil it for you, but it, it has a lot to do with kind of what we just talked about, like working smarter rather than than harder. And just, I don't know. I'd like for you to read it and we can talk about it after you, yeah. after you read it. But uh, yeah, send me your address and I'll, I'll send it to you. But this was, this was awesome, man. I am really proud to know you because you are, are just doing some incredible things. I mean, rowing 3000 miles across the Atlantic ocean is, is certainly one thing, but then when you pair that with the reason that you're doing it and also couple that again with the fact that you have a lot at home, you've got a family, you've got you know, a wife and kids and, and to, to take this risk and go away uh, on a solo isolation mission to, to try to make a difference. That that's, that's huge, man. So big kudos to you. Uh, certainly congratulations for finishing the race. I mean, there probably were millions of reasons that, that were going against you. Uh, some that we've talked about and probably many others that you overcame and probably even forgot about. But uh, really, really cool what you're doing, um, and I'm sure that there's more. So tell people how they can follow you and learn more about what you've done and, and support what you're going to do in the future. Yeah, so Tame the Kraken, T-A-M-E-T-H-E-K-R-A-K-E-N.com is the website. Um, on there, you'll find links to all our social media uh, I'd say I'm probably more active on Instagram than anything else because I'm a man of few words, um, and I'll use other people's quotes and, and compare them to my own uh, pictures. So, um, like I said, the website needs updating. The um, we are a charity, a 501c3 uh, charity here in in Georgia. Like I said, we're we're we have plans. Um, so the best best way is to stay tuned on our social media. Uh, visit the website and as soon as we know what we're going to do next, we will, we'll post it up there and um, let everybody know. So uh, no timeline at this stage, but it'll, it'll happen at some point. Awesome. Well, I hope you're staying safe with, with all the COVID issues going on and hopefully when this is all over, we can get together and do a little training and, and catch up in person. Absolutely. I look forward to it. Okay. Tim, thank you very much. We're going to talk to you soon. See you. You too. Bye-bye. Okay. Hold on just a second. Um, I'm going to stop the recording and it's going to say preparing your audio on your end. And we need to just kind of leave this app open for a few minutes and the audio will upload. um, And then you can end the call. Um, Yeah. But uh, yeah. Imagine this this whole isolation thing and not being able to do is, is impacting your world. Oh yeah. Quite a bit. Very much so. Um, 
and it's, it, I, I don't think anyone is immune to this. I mean, maybe, maybe a lawyer, maybe. I mean, you know, you got uh, lawyers are like one of my best friends is a lawyer. He said he just had his most, his busiest month ever, you know, because he's, he's trying to help people navigate through this situation. But for the most part, I mean, I, I, I don't know that anyone is going to be immune to this. And for us, it kind of, you know, we obviously can't shoot right now. So we're lucky enough that we had all our shows done for the year beforehand. But, you know, when a lot of our sponsors are um, like hotels in the, in the Florida Keys, that's our biggest sponsor. And they close the Florida Keys and that hotel goes to yeah. zero, which of course we've dealt with that before with a hurricane where a hurricane hits, destroys the place. But the big difference there is there's business interruption insurance, there's hurricane insurance, there's all of the, these things that, um, we, they never missed a payment. Everything was fine. You know, it was inconvenient for everyone, but it wasn't like this, like this is, this is different. And I don't know that anybody, I mean, there's no insurance for any of these things. I don't know that anybody has, has any sort of immunity to this, this deal, but yeah, it'll impact them one way or another. Um, but it's, it's funny. We've probably got another mutual contact, if not a friend. Oh yeah. Um, Rob, uh, Cervello, who owns Tropic Airways or. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We uh, did some but, work with him. Yeah. I've seen you playing on some of your videos, uh, -huh. uh flying at some of these locations. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I yeah, he of, uh he's a special forces guy, right? Yeah, so he was a um obviously a pilot um attached to the SF world. Um I got introduced to him through another pilot friend of mine that did some work for for them and then we kind of connected um actually it was for the not last year's hurricanes the year before or maybe even the year before that now. Um they were pulling people out of in private islands and, and right. other, other spots of the Caribbean. And then I think last year we started to discuss how we could perhaps support them, supporting some of their clients from a, having a, a doctor at his base there, I think in somewhere in, might have been Bermuda or Bahamas, I can't remember. Yeah, the Bahamas, probably yeah. Abaco. Um, yeah. That place got wrecked by the, by the hurricane. Yeah. I mean, that was the worst hurricane ever it got there and it was moving like a half a mile an hour for 24 hours there. yeah just and, that, that. and that's our that's my next plan um i didn't want to say it on the podcast but this actually this may late may we were hoping to do a proof of concept row from the west end of grand bahama to charleston okay and, uh, so we're looking now to to set up our own charitable race um and have the first one, if it all works as we hope it to, and, and to get a couple of sponsors on board, um, Memorial Day 2021, we were hoping to have a team, a pairs team from each branch of the military row from Grand Bahama to, to Charleston. Um, it's about 400 nautical miles or just under. Um, so as a pair, if the weather is with you, it should take somewhere between seven and 10 days at the longest. Um, so it's something that's more manageable because one of the things that I found and why I've still got my boat because I was hoping to sell it and put that into the charity, um, 
ocean rowing over here is not as popular as it is in Europe because um, most people struggle to get two weeks off work, let alone right. two months. Right. Um, and it's an expensive endeavor. And those that are either retired, independently wealthy, or have their own business and want to row an ocean are the only ones that really can do it. So we were looking at how can we take the experience of ocean rowing but do it in a more of a manageable size. And we came across kind of that area. And if you time it right where the, the Gulf Stream is starting to form, you could quite easily just power up the, the East Coast. Mm. Uh, and obviously Charleston, the, the finish line is literally at the the, the back of the USS Yorktown. Oh, yeah, yeah, so I've been there. Patriots Point. Um, and obviously it would play into the whole uh, veterans mental health piece so that's what we're we're planning um i'm not sure if this uh, proof of concept row will will happen this year um because i'm now hearing that where people are predicting that we might get hit quite hard with hurricanes this year hmm. um, so those are the sort of factors that we've got to play into it um, yeah. and then with this global crisis going on sponsorship is is a little bit difficult because i'm also a part of a a team that's considering doing the, the northwest passage oh really um, in rowing boats so did gonna, you see that um that guy colin o'brady did did uh, a big row across um what did he row he rowed um uh it's a real dangerous cold place no. Well, there was a team that just rode down into Antarctica um, a few months back. Yeah, it could have been. Yeah, I think that was. I think they that were, was him. They were a, I think they were a team of four or five. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. I think he was on that. That guy's pretty interesting. He's done a lot of uh, yeah. mountaineering and different things. He's been on Joe Rogan a couple of times. He was just on there recently talking about this row. You can find. I didn't listen to that one, but I listened to his first podcast over there where he had done all this mountaineering. Uh, and set all these different records, um, which was pretty interesting. I, I don't know. He's got, he's kind of, I don't know. I could see you guys pairing up and doing something together because he's he's on the same page. Very extreme and um, certainly a tremendous amount of training that goes into whatever he chooses for his next thing. But a, a cool dude seems like. Mm. Yeah, it's surprising. Um, there's a. I want to say he's a, might be Italian, but he's an American Italian. He um or British Italian, I can't remember. He um he was planning to kayak from San Francisco to Hawaii this later oh. this year. I think he's now having to postpone his plans. And it was interesting because he just re released his design. If you take kind of like the design of my boat and then trim it down even more uh, to. Yeah, a very oversized kayak with a kind of cabin on the back. Um, kind of I find intriguing, um, just because of my how stable is that? Like, it's more like a cigar shape, and it could easily get rolled and capsized. Right. So, um, but I see he put a note out the other day saying that he's perhaps going to have to postpone. So there's a lot of like I was my boat. I was going to charter my boat to a, a team in Ireland that we're going to do the race later this year. Um, they've had to postpone now to next year. Um, and then there's a pairs team that I've been working with in Jacksonville. Um, they were due to do it this year and they've now just postponed until next year because 
all the sponsorship has dried up and people are just hunkering down. Right. Yeah. Well, hopefully everything will come roaring back when, yeah, when this clears hope, up. Uh, if, if people will, will stay at home and, and help flatten the, the curve, hopefully we can bounce back a little bit quicker. I hope so. I hope so. Well, anyway, man, great catching up with you. Uh, hey, send me an email with your address. I want to send you this book. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll do that now before I forget. All right. Thanks, Tim. We're all good. The audio is uploaded, so you can just hit end call and we'll we'll be good. Cool. Thank yeah, you so we'll, much. Uh, we'll chat soon. Okay. See you. Thanks, Tom. Take care. Well, thanks, Tim. That was incredible. Man, you are an inspiration. And just like that quote said, don't let what you can't do interfere with what you can do. That's what I'm going to take away from this conversation with my friend Tim Crockett. You can follow him at all of his different social media accounts, Tame the Kraken. And uh, as always, this show is brought to you by Waypoint TV. You can go and see all of our new episodes for Saltwater Experience Into the Blue Sweetwater and so many more. I put all my knot videos up there. You can learn all the different knots while we're in lockdown, over 40 different knots. Podcasts up there on the uh, Waypoint Outdoor Collective. You can um, join the social media army. You can just type in Waypoint and you're going to come. It'll probably auto-populate all of the different accounts. Waypoint TV, Waypoint Fish, Waypoint Salt, Waypoint Boating, Waypoint Hunting, uh, Waypoint Outdoor Collective. I'm probably even leaving some other ones out, but uh, just finished the March Madness bracket on Waypoint Fish, which is their largest account, and um, Into the Blue won. And it was a great race. So thank you for everyone who voted for us for Into the Blue and just participated in that. That was really cool. And great to see all of you out there. And thank you so much for your support. Until next week, see you.